Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to stories of discipleship and putting Scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the Communications Director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of just fewer than 1,000 churches throughout Kansas and Nebraska. I'm also a certified lay minister in the United Methodist Church, so what you hear on this show truly comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 25 years' experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teenagers to 90-somethings, and I served as a journalist for 20 years prior to entering ministry. So I'm excited to share with you stories of disciples in action and to explore with you what the Bible has to teach us in the 21st century. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes feature interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. Still others include short reflections on Scripture. Thank you for joining me. It's Black History Month, and so this In Layman's Terms podcast is providing a three-part series on a trip made by members of the Great Plains and Louisiana conferences to the areas around Montgomery and Birmingham, Alabama last summer. Both of those are places that played significant roles in the civil rights movement. The journey was a civil rights immersion trip to help educate, inspire, and stir to action followers of Christ. One of the goals was to give people the tools they need to combat racism and to push for equity in our society. In the first of this three-part series, we looked at some of the inspiration people found on the trip. In this episode, I think it's important that we explore the emotions that people felt on the trip and what has continued to resonate with them since coming home. I think it's also important to unpack what a few folks in our group taught about hate, especially how they experience it. And we have to look at the legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow laws, redlining, and the current tragedy of mass incarceration. As a reminder, some of these interviews were conducted in August of 2023, and the others were conducted in January and February of this year. Let's start this episode with Pastor Rhonda Kingwood of Heart of Christ United Methodist Church in Wichita. She starts by sharing an experience as she exited the Civil Rights Institute in Birmingham, Alabama. I remember telling someone, especially when we came out of the Institute uh, Museum, the Civil Rights Institute Museum, I said, I'm going to let y'all go to the park. I'm just going to walk around it and get in the car. I'm in emotional overload, information overload, and I don't know that I can share another feeling. (laughs) You know, I was in that place because part of it is, and, and I'll be very, very frank, is that what I see and what I feel is going to be different than what you see or what you feel, even though it's heartbreaking for you, it's different on this side. And so there's anger, there's sadness, um, there's um, hurt. There's also a feeling of, I don't want to say pride to the that point, but to be proud that people went through all of this so that I could be here, so that I could do what I do. So so I had all of those feelings, but the anger is, and I made sure, I'm that person that I made sure that I didn't want to feel anger and be angry at every white person. 
I did not want to do that. And I know people that do that. You see this stuff and all of a sudden you're just angry at every white person. That was not my anger. My anger was that it was allowed. My anger was that it happened. My anger was that those that are privileged um, and those that felt um, above could do this. And my anger is that it's still happening now. We have modern day slavery in our prison systems. Um, we, we still have um, privileged white folk that feel like they are better than and treat uh, black and brown people differently. We still have uh, enslavement. And so I think that was um, a lot of emotion for me um, to really, and I'm what I'm so glad is that the young people were there. And my hope is that they they really saw what they needed to see. Um, and that something stirred on the inside because the fight is still happening. Um, there's still things happening in Alabama. There's still things happening in the prison system. There's still things happening in the deep South. Um, if you remember during the last administration before this one, things had got pretty heavy and there were lynchings starting all over. They were finding people lynched, you know? And so when I look at this now and I think about where we are, we've come a long way, but it's almost like we're trying to go backwards. And um, so I still have some of those feelings. I am I am so glad that I was able to go on this trip. I am so glad that I was able to see what I was able to see. And I'm so glad that we were able to have discussions um, and that helps with the emotions of it all. Um, but I felt every emotion there was to feel. Those emotions were raw for a lot of people, but I can't emphasize enough the truth behind Rhonda's words. As a white person, I can be, and indeed I am, mad and disappointed with our nation's history on race. I'm frustrated by our ongoing challenges with inequity for all people. We saw so much. From the bus terminal in Montgomery where freedom riders were ambushed by white supremacists, to the Legacy Museum, a mission of the Equal Justice Initiative, or EJI, that was built on the grounds where slaves were once held for sale. To the iconic Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, to the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, where four girls lost their lives to an idiotic bomber who chose to attack a house of worship on a Sunday morning. Jerry Williams is a Fairway, Kansas resident and a layperson. He shares some profound recollections of our time on the bridge in Selma. Being on that bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, because a lot of the, the history uh, was just that it was history for me and I kind of had bits and pieces and I and again I learned a lot but it was all kind of uh, separated from me uh, until I got on the bridge and that was the actual bridge and I was standing on it and I knew what had happened on the bridge I'd seen pictures but just getting there and being there and just kind of uh, understanding what happen on that bridge uh, kind of change how I live life in this country um, for the better 
And I don't know what life would have been like for me as a black man in the U.S. if things had not happened the way they happened on that bridge. And it kind of hit when I just, I was walking across that bridge and it was just like, it was almost overwhelming. It's like, this is where kind of the whole um, civil rights movement started. And that was the center of kind of the things that happened. And at, at that point, that's when the world kind of saw what was going on uh, in, in our country and it changed things. It was very violent and I was thinking about the people like John Lewis in particular, uh, his life was changed. Uh, I mean, because of the physical beatings, um, but they sacrificed themselves for a future generation that they had not seen, didn't know. I mean, they just sacrificed themselves because they knew eventually it would lead to something better. And they knew what was gonna happen when they uh, got on the bridge, they, they knew it. And I kept asking myself, it's like, would I have done the same thing if I was in their shoes? And I think I would, but when you see those pictures, it's like, wow, <laughs> I don't know. I think I would. I, I think I had dealt with Jim Crow in the 60s, the civil rights movement. I thought I had dealt with it and it was almost uh, something that was a part of me and I had moved on. The surprising piece was how quickly you can go back and be there uh, in spirit with the people who went through it uh, personally and physically. That I could almost hear and feel the spirit of the people when I was on that bridge. And that was just powerful. And like I said, overwhelming. It was just like learning about it in history books or even from your parents. And um, it's not the same as being there because somehow the people are still there and they kind of become a part of you at that, that moment. And it's just, I get chills now talking about it because it's just something happens when you're there and the, the spirits kind of, I keep saying the spirits, I don't know if it's the spirits, but it feels like they're there. I have to say that I agree with Jerry. As I walked the bridge, I found myself staring at the metal and then at the roadway, occasionally looked at the river underneath. But at one point I paused, I closed my eyes and I took a deep breath. To walk where Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis and other key people from the civil rights movement walked, the only thing I can liken it to is when I was standing in Independence Hall in Philadelphia. You can just kind of sense that something of extreme importance happened at that very spot. Reverend Laura Andrews took part in the civil rights immersion and has since led a group of students from the University of Kansas and Kansas State on a similar trip in her role as campus minister at K-State. She shares her thoughts from the bridge. Just the power of of walking that space with people I respect so much in our conference and new friends, you know, that was one of the gifts of the trip with 
Louisiana and with Great Plains is I met people, some who live, you know, 15 minutes from me that I'd never met before, lay people that I don't pastor, which was wonderful to be able to travel and, and just be Laura and not lead in, in that space, but but to be able to walk and be changed with every step and sing um, right behind Pastor Rhonda and, you know, remember my baptism next to, you know, a lay person down the road, but also next to Bishop Williamston, who, um, you know, had done so much work for EJI. And so I, I also just think about how we're changed in community and the way that those people, when I see them, when I talk to them, when I pray for them, when they pray for me, we also are are pulling back those memories of of those steps we took at the bridge, you know, and then we take steps here too um, to create change. Laura also said the bridge had a big impact on students when they took their trip to Alabama in January of 2024. One of the things we did with the young adults as we watched the movie Selma the night before we walked the bridge. And so to stand on the bridge right after we had seen the movie and Bloody Sunday and some of them learning that story for the first time, it was freezing cold, which is very different than our experience in the summer. It was freezing cold on the bridge, but we walked slow and, and, they said, oh, it happened right here. You know, John Lewis was right here. I don't know if they knew who John Lewis was when we went on the trip, but they knew who John Lewis was, you know, through the time because we'd been to the Freedom Rides Museum because, you know, we'd learned about him the Equal Justice Initiative. And so just to see, oh my goodness, just in a couple days, they already knew that story and and then kind of walked that. So that was, that was a really big... Um, aha moment I think for them the other part is just the the experience of enslavement and ha hearing their reactions to to you know just the overwhelming numbers of folks who were just treated so terribly one of our students is from the Congo and and went and so to experience to to see his experience of American history um, as an African, it 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 was also overwhelming. I think for all of us to hear his um, non-American, you know, holding space of that of that trip too. Laura mentioned a student from the Democratic Republic of Congo, another student from that country. Joseph Kasango accompanied our group in July of 2023. He's a student at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. Learning about that episode in our country's history was brand new for him. A lot of things surprised me. Uh, first of all, uh, when we visited the uh, Freedom Rights Museum, Freedom Rights Museum, yeah, I mean, that was really surprising to me that, you know, that type of, you know, like black people couldn't write, you know, you know, the same in the same buses as white people. I mean, they, they just want to get a ride. I mean, what was wrong with that? That was really surprising. I didn't know anything about that. And I, and I kept reading stories. I read stories about young people, you know, young college students of my age, you know, they were you know boycotting the buses and some of them were really protesting, knowing that they could get arrested, you know, and, you know, get, get put into jail, but they still went, you know, marching. I was like, 
what was going on in their minds. They really wanted to change. So that was really surprising to me. I'm like, okay, my parents are home. They want me to get back home. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to go and protest, knowing that I might get arrested. Of course, the reason for so many of these incidents, actually for all of these atrocities, is hatred. Not for any reason of what a person has done to someone else, but purely because of the color of a person's skin. Jerry Williams and I talked about how people could feel such a vitriol for someone they've never even met. We discussed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham and the parsonage of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, where Dr. King served as pastor in the 1950s. Someone tried to kill him and his family by placing a bomb on the parsonage's front porch. An indentation and a plaque commemorate the location these days. I kept thinking in the museum at the 16th Street Baptist Church and at the parsonage when I mentioned the bomb, I kept wondering how could someone hate that much? And I don't, I don't know how you get to, to that point. Uh, like where you can kill, maim, and torture people that you don't even know. Like it seems crazy even if you know people, but if you don't even know people, how does someone hate that much? And I I kind of, uh, and I was dealing with that the, the whole time. It's like, I don't, I don't know hate like this. And I just think you have to be taught to hate that well. Cause I don't know if anything can happen in your life where you could hate that much as you live, you meet people uh, at work, in your neighborhood, in the grocery store, and you know this is not uh, what's reflected in those pictures. And I mean, there's some people out there that are still carrying around hate. I'm not gonna say it's not that way. But I'll venture out to say most people are not that way. The majority of people are not that way. And I didn't want, my fear was that somebody would leave there that, that trip carrying hate like what we just saw. And I didn't want that to happen. We heard in the first episode of this three-part series from Malika Katharima. She's a student at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. She was incredibly brave and transparent to tell us what she feels as she lives her life as a black woman in today's United States. I asked her how she copes with the emotions that would seem to me to be so easy to allow to the surface, and she explained to me that the care she has to place in reacting to numerous things in our world to avoid being stamped as an angry black person or from some other stereotype, usually linking people of color to violence. My greatest example that I have to answer your question would be the way that people idolize Dr. King. They think of him as someone who only, who is just a, a very peaceful, peaceful man who did not want violence in any way. When, when Malcolm X was the exact opposite, he was a man who wanted violence when that was not the case. Dr. King, I think knew just as I told you, when I'm angry, it is not perceived as just that emotion. 
And he knew that because he knew that if they went with fire with fire, that that would not, like I'm, people seem to think he was just some man who was like a peacekeeper this and a peacekeeper that because for example, my grandpa is a very peaceful man and he is someone who does not like when he hears someone use the word hate. He likes, he, he uses the word forgiveness a lot, but that doesn't mean my grandpa never got angry. That never means my grandpa has never had a violent thought in his life against someone who wronged his family. I'm sure Dr. King felt violently angry when those people bombed his house. But because he was given, he was given not the burden, but the image of being that of a very peaceful, nonviolent man, he didn't get to outwardly feel those emotions either. And that is why that I think that would be one of my biggest examples because they're like well Dr. King's so proudly like he turned the mob around da, 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 da. but you don't know what happened when he went back into his house you don't know what happened when he had to sit with the thought knowing that someone tried to kill his family and that would make any human being violently angry regardless of who they are and they seemed to, and he didn't show that outwardly because he knew how that would be perceived and he knew what would happen. And that is, in no way am I comparing myself to Martin Luther King, but it's my way of saying that Dr. King was also a person and also a person with very human emotions. And the villainization of Malcolm X and the um, idolizing of Dr. King I think is a very great example as to as to how and why I keep my emotions internally and especially on topics like that why I don't have them as outwardly as I do because if it's anything but forgiveness and sadness um, and my inability to move on then it is perceived as violent and angry and I'm making the white people around me feel bad for being white because they can't control it. They can't control what their ancestors did when at the end of the day, regardless of how hard you try or anyone tries, there are still unconscious biases that every white person has. And I won't, every person has in their mind unconscious biases. I myself have them as well. I am not free of that, but it is, and my, I use it when it's, for example, when I hear those things, like when everything that's happening, a lot of the times my automatic response is, oh man, I hate white people. I hate white people. And for me, white people have gotten <laughs> really upset when I say that. Um, and my best way to explain that they're like, well, what if, what if I said, what if I said I hate all black people? And it's like the magnitude of the two statements are very different. And the history behind both of those statements are very different. And to me, the white people who have gotten mad when I say that are the white people I'm talking about when I say that. At no point, I understand not every white person is hateful or doesn't like me, but it's hard when you know that at any moment, if they decide on a whim, they could weaponize that against me. And that is 
it's hard living your life on guard like that. So even amid all the raw emotional things we saw on our trip in July, Malika felt like she needed to hold it together. I specifically in the middle of Alabama with a group of people I just met two days before, I was like, this is not the time. This is not the place. Um, these people are very kind, but you don't know them. And unfortunately that is just the reality of the way I've, have to, I've had to live, which is not a fun way to live, especially. I, I was the youngest person on the trip. I'm still very, very young, but I've had to live this way my whole life. And I had, I've, I've, for the longest time, I did not under, I could not understand that. And I would constantly get put in unsafe situations because of it. And I've had to learn how to not do that. And so it was not, not something I learned to do on that trip. It is, that was an accumulation of the last 18 years of my life. Of course, one of the aspects of race we were challenged to examine was the ongoing consequence of chattel slavery. One night as we ate dinner as a group at a restaurant, the discussion turned to identity, specifically how slavery stripped people of their heritage and their lineage. Their names became ones given to them randomly. Their family names, which carry much more meaning than those of us in Western society, well, they were replaced with the names of their slaveholders. The result was a loss of culture, of family history. That night in that restaurant, Malika bravely stood and explained the concept of names. I asked her to explain it for my listeners so that you can understand the significance of the mass loss of identities. I spoke specifically from the tribe in Kenya that my family is from. However, one thing I can um, and that I've learned is that regardless of where um, the people I've met who are also from different countries in Africa, that names are important, regardless of how their naming process is, because I know like even the tribes next to my family's tribes, the, the naming process is entirely different. And so I can imagine across the continent how different they all are, but the message is still the same in the fact that, especially because my great grandparents, of the four of them, only one of them could read and write because three of them didn't go to school. So what they had was their name and every person before them, that is what they had, especially when the British came to Kenya. What you had and what you still have is your name. Your name tells the family you are from, it tells who the people in your family are. The tribe that your family is from and the language that your tribe speaks. And I, I don't know how to articulate the importance of it because it is something I've grown, I grew up understanding because of my name. There is a reason I have my full name. Every part of it means something and is important in some way. Millions of people had their names stripped from them and to this day have the last names of slave owners is very, very, that, that just felt like a loss. Um, 
because a privilege that I do have is to have my name and have the name. I would I always loved my name and I took a lot of pride in my name. And this isn't even just for me or like on the continent of Africa. Even my a lot of my friends are South Asian. Their names mean something. Their names have an importance and they show something, they represent something in some way that represents their family, their family that they're from. And like where my friend, one of my friends is from is from Bangladesh. You can tell if someone's Hindu or if someone's Muslim by their name alone. Then once you go by that, you can tell who their father is, who their father's father was, where their father's father, father was from. And that, the fact that that was taken from such a large group of people really distraught me um and it's I've noticed because it's this is it's mostly a western thing of just sort of naming your name kids <laughs> to just name them um whereas really near almost everywhere else in the world it is important how and what you name your kids for example my mom her first name is in English you're supposed to have an English name first because the British came. Um, I don't and it kind of looks like my family rebelled against the British when I tell people my name in Kenya. So ignore me for a second. My mom's first name is Glory. My um, grandma's first name is Lydia. My grandpa's first name is Charles, right? Those are all very English, very, very English names. However, every single one of them have their given name, which is their second name. And that name, depending on your birth order and your um, sex at birth, that is how it's determined. So my mom is the firstborn and she is a girl. So her second given name, her middle name, is a name that represents my grandpa's mother. So all the women get in the village and they choose a word that describes that woman. And for my mom, they chose Keremi, which the literal translation is shovel, but um, it means um, a small farmer, like a really small hard worker. Because my grandpa's mom is a very little lady, um, but she's an incredibly hard worker. So when you're in Kenya, they ask you your names. They don't ask you, what is your name? They ask you, what are your names? So my mom has to say her name is Gloria Karemi. And sometimes, depending on what name you go by, some people go by their given name or some people go by their English name. So my mom in Kenya goes by Karemi, but my aunt goes by Joy and not Mwendwa. It just depends. Some of my cousins, one of, she goes by Rose, not by her given name. My grandma, Lydia, goes by Kagwe. Um, my grandpa, Charles, and this is where, this is why I have to write stuff down because it gets confusing. My last name, you can see it on the Zoom, is Katharima. Um, that's my grandpa's given name. That's his middle name. So when you, when a couple gets married, you take the husband's middle name and make it the last name of everyone else because that's the name he goes by. 
So when I say my name is Malika Katharima, um, they know that my grandpa is my grandpa. They know where my family is from. His last name is his dad's given name. So people know who my grandpa belonged to. If that makes sense. I hope you understand a little better why the loss of identity was so devastating to people who were being enslaved. It's a heritage that, in most cases, can never be restored. And yet, it's just another legacy of the many on the long list of bad things that happened because of slavery. Another legacy is white supremacy, which is really just another form of the caste system. You doubt what I said in that statement? Well, I urge you to read the book titled Caste, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. I read the book in preparation for the trip last year, and the author does an amazing job of drawing what should be obvious parallels between the caste system that many capitalist Americans would oppose vehemently with racial injustice that has not only been encouraged, but systematically entrenched in this country literally since its beginning. Abhiskar Sharma is a college student at Morningside College in Iowa. She participated in the MICA Corps, a social justice internship and training ground sponsored by the Great Plains Conference. She's from Nepal. She knows how the caste system works. She and her microcore colleague, Julie Davidich, uh, who also traveled with us to Alabama, turned me onto the book during a pre-trip Zoom meeting. So I asked Abascar to explain the caste system. I want you to listen for the parallels to racism in the United States. The book talks about the caste system in India, but it's kind of similar to Nepal because like, it's Hindu... Um, country so it's same uh, how caste system works in my home country nepal so um we have different categories and how like the first is priest and brahmin chetriya sudra and vaisa and each have their own uh, category and work so it was like which was a big problem for me i never liked the um caste system I was always against it, and I, and then after reading this book, like I was shocked that like oh my god, like yes, there is caste system here in the United States, and uh, I think the writer, um, her name I- I- Isabel, I think, uh, you know, she did a like great work with like comparing caste system with India and how caste system works here in the United States. She came up with like different examples, like personal example. Um, I never knew that like um, there was a colored um, school, colored water fountain, like everything was separated. And it's kind of same in Nepal because people with lower cost, they are not allowed to go to the, not do the same tap on even if they have to go to the same tap like where they can get water uh they have to wait till everybody's done like people with higher cost once they are done and um they are not allowed the people with lower cost they are not allowed inside the house and even like the people they will use different utensils to give them food or water like they can touch the same like utensils and all these things was so similar uh, to the 
caste system in the United States where the color person is um, not allowed to drink water from the same fountain or go to the same school. So it, it was shocking to me, like how all this time I had problem with the caste system in my country. And then I came here and then it's a different story, like uh, same, but like in a different way. So there were times, I don't know who, but when I shared about caste system, people were like, even here at Morningside, they were shocked. I'm like, oh my God. And, uh, and then I read this book and I was like, oh, like you didn't know, but you had the same problem in the United States. So I like, I really like, I would never thought um, of that, like how there is cost system in the United States, but th this book is very helpful. Like the way she compared and uh, showing us the like real example, it's fascinating to learn about that. And at least I'm glad that we, yeah, we had class system and there was no, like, I, I don't want to say, but like lynching and everything. And the, it's, it's so like sad and heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking in Nepal, it's heartbreaking in India, and it's heartbreaking right here in the United States. Thankfully though, United Methodists and others are trying to break that cycle. So far in this series, we've talked about the deep emotions of sadness and anger that we all experienced, though admittedly to different degrees, throughout that entire trip to Alabama. In the final of these three episodes, we'll talk about how the trip changed people, and we'll talk a little bit about hope for the future. That's next time on In Layman's Terms. In Layman's Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifert. If you like what you've heard in this episode, please go rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps others find us. And if you're so inclined, please share the link to this podcast on your social media channels. Our music and sound effects come via subscriptions to Universal Production Music and to Storyblocks. You can find archived episodes on the conference website at www.greatplainsumc.org podcasts or on my website, toddseifert.com. Please email me with any questions or comments to tseifert at greatplainsumc.org and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thank you for listening, and until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.